Good morning and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. And I'm your editor, Bryce. And today we're going to be discussing part one of the infamous case involving O.J. Simpson. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. The eventful life of Arenthal James Simpson, more commonly known as O.J. Simpson, begins in the year 1947, when he was born in San Francisco on July 9th. He grew up in an area called Putrero Hill, which was a lower-income neighborhood just on the outside of San Francisco. Just a quick note on his name, it was actually his aunt who gave him the name of Arenthal, or at least suggested it. Where did she get that name? So, it was actually the name of a French actor that she really liked. And so that was her suggestion. And so his name was Arenthal. But from now on, I'm just going to refer to him as OJ. When OJ was two, he contracted a case of what's called rickets. What is rickets? It's actually referred to as a medical term called osteomalacia, which most often occurs in children when they're suffering from a vitamin D deficiency. And so this results in them not being able to maintain proper calcium levels or phosphorus levels, and this makes their bones get really soft. And so in OJ's case, he became pigeon-toed and bow-legged because of it. And it was because of this that he came into all sorts of bullying by his friends, and they ended up giving him a nickname of Pencil Pins. And so because his family was unable to afford the surgery for it, in order to combat the illness, he would wear an iron bar that would connect his pair of shoes for a few hours nearly every day until he was five years old. So for about three years. So how it was looking early on was that his childhood was not really pointing in the direction that would suggest any sort of career in sports. By 1952, when he's still a young kid, his father's left the family, and that just leaves his mother to support him and his three siblings. He had a brother and two sisters. She was trying to support them with a career at a psychiatric ward. And so as OJ grew a little bit older into his adolescence, he started to get in trouble with the law, and he was joining gangs. In this case, it was one called the Persian Warriors. As he became a sophomore in high school, he attended Galileo High School, he was involved in a gang fight and had spent a week at a correctional facility called San Francisco Youth Guidance Center and all sorts of behavior that was really not putting him down a path of success. While OJ was starting to recover from this illness, it was his mother that started to encourage him to try sports. And so he joined a local club called Booker T. Washington Community Center and started playing several different sports there, and he would go there fairly often. So despite getting involved in several different sports, he was still being held back by getting trouble with the law still and poor grades in school. OJ's life finally takes a turn for the positive on a Monday afternoon when he is woken up from a nap to voices downstairs. He goes downstairs to his living room to see a man by the name of Willie Mays, who at the time was a star baseball player for the San Francisco Giants, and he was their one of basically their best outfielder. And a quote from Simpson at the time was him describing Mays as my absolute hero. Why was he there? So if you remember the club that OJ played sports at, the man who ran it, his name was Lefty Gordon, he arranged the visit thinking that if pushed in the right direction by somebody OJ saw as a hero, it might be what he needed to finally open his potential and become a truly outstanding athlete. So he arranged that meeting to happen. And what was interesting about this meeting is that 
There was really no inspirational speech. There was no words of wisdom. They basically just spent the day together, OJ and Mays. They went to the dry cleaners together to pick up his clothes, and he took him back to his house in the St. Francis Hills, and he let OJ sit in on a meeting that he had with a representative from a local charity, and then he just took him back home. So for Mays, this was nothing out of the ordinary for him, as he was often doing this with troubled kids in the area to try to get them on the right path. For OJ, though, this had a big impact on him for basically the rest of his life. And so I found a quote from him many years later when he was a commentator for Monday Night Football on ABC. So I'm going to share that with you to kind of put in perspective what this meant for him. So, quote, Here was Willie Mays, who I had always envisioned as my hero, taking time to spend with me. We all have our heroes, and we tend to view them as larger than life. But to have that hero pay attention to me, it made me feel that I must be special too. After spending time with him, my dreams became realistic goals. Because I was able to touch the man, he became a guy like me, with problems. His clothes weren't ready at the cleaners. So he made me realize that we all have it in ourselves to be heroes. The feeling was, he's done it, so can I. I can have people who want to watch me perform. He showed me that I could succeed, and I was a lot more determined to succeed after that experience. End quote. It was after this meeting that OJ went from being held back by his bad grades and the law to joining the City College of San Francisco and proving himself by consistently overcoming the competition and the football team that he joined. He gathered a lot of attention with specs such as averaging 9.3 yards per carry, scoring 54 touchdowns, and eventually there were 50 different colleges that wanted to recruit him, and he would end up choosing to join the Trojans at the University of Southern California and ultimately lead them to a Rose Bowl championship and the national title in 1967. He would go on to set multiple NCAA records and win the Heisman Trophy in 1968. So when the draft of 1969 came, he was the first player selected, and he would end up spending nine seasons with the Buffalo Bills and two seasons with the 49ers. OJ accomplished a lot in his athletic career over the next decade until his eventual retiring from football in 1979. It's at this point in his life when he starts to pursue a career as a sportscaster and also starts pursuing more acting. So it's important to note that he had already dabbled in acting while he was playing football. And interestingly, one of his first roles was playing a man being framed for murder in 1974 in a film called The Klansman. Another example of some acting he had done in 1988, he played a detective's assistant in a movie called The Naked Gun and also its sequels. Uh, He was also well-known for his frequent appearance in the Hertz car rental commercials. And as I mentioned before, he was a commentator for Monday Night Football. So now that I've covered the basis of his career, we're going to focus a little bit more on his relationships, most specifically with Nicole. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way.
OJ and Nicole met in 1977 when Nicole was working as a waitress at a Beverly Hills private club called the Daisy. Nicole was 18 at this time, and OJ was still married to his first wife, Marguerite, at this time. And OJ and Nicole started dating, and they dated for about seven years and then got married in February of 1985, about six years after OJ had divorced from his first wife. OJ and Nicole were married for seven years, and in that time period, they had two kids, Sydney and Justin. Sydney was born in 1985, and Justin was born in 1988. In the beginning of 1992, OJ and Nicole divorced. However, that didn't last for very long. They ended up getting back together, and their relationship was pretty much off and on up until June of 1994. And at this time, the two were separated. Now that our timeline has reached the year of 1994, we can start to discuss that date of June 12th. The night starts around 6.30 p.m. when Nicole, her mother, and her two kids, Sydney and Justin, had planned to go out to a restaurant that one of OJ's sons from his previous marriage worked at, and he was fully expecting them to come, and they decided to go to a different restaurant eventually. They ultimately decided, without telling Jason, to go to a different restaurant that night called the Mezzaluna. After they got back home from the restaurant, they had realized that her mom had forgotten her glasses at the restaurant. So they called her the restaurant, and Nicole specifically asked for an old friend of hers that she knew worked there, Ronald Goldman. He agreed to drop off the glasses and shortly after headed that way. And this is the last time that either of them are really heard of. The next notable event that night happens around 10.30, when a neighbor named Stephen Schwab was out walking his dog when he came across another dog walking around with bloody paws. And this dog follows him back to his house, where two other neighbors, Sucru and Bettina, offered to keep the dog overnight. But the dog, which was very agitated and barking wouldn't stay. So they follow the dog, and just shortly after midnight is when they discovered the bodies of Nicole and Ronald. When the police do finally arrive on the scene, one of the first things they notice is that there are still lit candles and music playing in the background. They find Nicole's body laying near the front steps in the fetal position. And upon first discovering her, it looked as though she had been stabbed to death. Her throat had been slit to the point of nearly decapitating her. Inside, there was a trail of blood throughout the entire apartment, in and out of several rooms, up the staircase, and those glasses that Goldman had been transporting in an envelope were found as well, also covered in blood. Uh, The kids were still asleep upstairs. Um, Goldman's body was found in some bushes nearby. His shirt was pulled up over his head, and it looked as though he had also been stabbed in the torso. Some of the evidence that they did collect on the property included a bloody left-hand glove, several shoe prints, blood, of course, hair, and some cotton fibers. A lot of the other specifics of the evidence and other things that were discovered about that night we'll bring up a little bit later in the episode when we talk about the trial itself in part two. So before I pass it off to Abby to talk about what happens next, which is basically the media coverage, I'm going to take a moment to talk about the details of the autopsy report. And keep in mind, this is rather graphic. There is some very graphic photos Um, that you can see if you really want to, but I'm just going to cover what they discovered and just how violent and extreme this was. So talking first about Nicole Brown Simpson, um, it starts with those major injuries around the neck. As Erica said, she was almost decapitated. So just on that wound of the neck, they found a transection of both the left and right common carotid arteries, 
which is just those um, main neck arteries, incisions of both the left and right internal jugular veins, again in the neck. They then describe a transection of the thyrohyoid membrane, which basically means that the cut went from the left or right side of the neck, cutting across the front to the other side. Um, damage to the epiglottis, which is the part in your throat that opens and closes when you swallow, and also the hypopharynx, which is more commonly known as your voice box. And then lastly, there was also an incision into her cervical spine, specifically C3. So moving on to other parts of the body, there were multiple stab wounds of the neck and the scalp, a total of seven. There were multiple injuries of the hand, including incised wounds, um, a right finger of her right hand, which most likely was a defense wound, and then there was also a bruised area of the scalp right near the right parietal, which is sort of near the the upper, almost back part of your head. Moving on to Ron Goldman's autopsy report, um, they describe seeing a sharp force wound of the neck on the left side with the transection of the left internal jugular vein, multiple stab wounds of the chest, abdomen, and left thigh, penetrating stab wounds of the chest and abdomen with right hemothorax and hemoperitoneum. Multiple incised wounds of the scalp, face, neck, chest, and left hand, which also was probably a defense wound, and multiple abrasions to the upper extremities and hands, which, again, are probably defense wounds. So it was pretty brutal, as you could tell from that whole list of things. Those are just, like, stab wounds, not to even mention, like, probably bruises and other parts of their body that could have been injured through all that. And it just, I think it points to a lot of rage, almost. Yeah, because I'm sure they would have died from less than half of the injuries here. So they were very extensive, very thorough. And they the photos that they did release, even though a lot of them are pixelated to sort of hide the extensiveness, it's basically all red all over the place. It's very extensive. Instantly, police are a little concerned and thinking maybe O.J. Simpson had something to do with this. They call him and he, at the time was in Chicago. He left on a flight 11.45 the night of the murders and arrived in Chicago very early that morning. And so they call him to let him know of the news and fly him back to interview him. Something interesting during this interview that they notice is that he does have a cut on his finger, to which he says he's not sure where it came from. And then his story kind of changes. He kind of just like fibbles with what it is. They talk to OJ and his timeline and the night of the murders, him and his friend Cato, who was staying in his guest house, OJ's guest house, went and had McDonald's for supper at a nearby McDonald's and came back around 9.45. And then a limo driver arrived around 10.25 at OJ's house to pick him up to take him to a scheduled flight which he can't really get a hold of OJ. He's buzzing, trying to get a hold of him. And OJ is not there. And he eventually arrives to the limo around 10.55. He had said that he overslept and he just got out of the shower. So you said it was a scheduled flight? Yes. Do you know when he had booked the flight? I don't know if it was so, like, how scheduled it is. It's probably like a private jet. You know, I wonder. Either way, within the next couple days, OJ was charged with two counts of murder. And he was to turn himself in on June 17th, 1994 to LAPD. At the time, he was staying at his friend Robert Kardashian's home. I'm sure y'all know who Robert Kardashian is, especially if you know this case. And 
you know, for other reasons, because maybe his last name is a little well known. But he slipped out in the morning and Robert Kardashian finds a note that OJ had left. The note is OJ talking a lot about saying goodbye and giving thanks to friends and family in his life. It, it reads a lot like a suicide note. Also in the note, though, OJ does state that he had nothing to do with Nicole's murder and that he's always loved her and always will. But at this point, OJ is a fugitive, I guess is the best way to call it. He was supposed to report into police and he has taken off and people don't know where he is. And Robert's finding this note and they held a press conference where Robert kind of reads parts of the note. And I think they're trying to reach out to OJ to come back and turn himself in. And something interesting I found was that there were rumors going around that OJ was going to go to Nicole's house, the scene of the crime, and commit suicide there. So there were actually like crowds outside her house trying to get a look to see if he was there, his body was there. Because of the press conference and all the media exposure, there were news choppers flying around everywhere looking for OJ. Eventually, a phone call comes in from someone driving on a freeway a little ways away from OJ's house and says that he sees OJ in the white Ford Bronco beside him. However, OJ's not driving. His friend Al Cowlings is, and OJ is in the back of the vehicle holding a gun to his own head, threatening to shoot himself. And police finally catch up and get involved, and they're on the phone with OJ during this, and OJ is saying that he deserves to die, and it's this really big ordeal where they're driving for almost two hours until the vehicle finally pulls into OJ's driveway, and OJ is arrested. Something really crazy about this whole chase is that a lot of it was televised, and there were people pulling into the other side of the highway, just getting out of their cars, waiting like a parade to go by watching and trying to get a look of this car chase. It was everywhere. I heard that there were like the people that were watching were actually holding signs trying to support OJ and escaping. Yeah, there were people like polarized from both sides, people holding signs in support of him. It was like a sporting event. It was crazy. In the vehicle, they found the loaded gun, obviously, OJ's passport, quite a bit of money, and some stuff that you would use for disguise. Fake mustache, maybe some makeup, different clothing, that kind of thing. So as I said, OJ is charged with the murders of Nicole and Ronald, and he pleads not guilty. Actually, he says absolutely 100% not guilty, Your Honor. So... Maybe a little extra there. You have no choice but to believe him if he also, says it like that. Also, how many people are actually going out there being like, yeah, you caught me, I did it. Seven months later, on January 24th, 1995, the trial begins. This concludes part one of the O.J. Simpson case. Tune in next Thursday for part two, where we go deep into discussion about the trial itself. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.